Welcome to Storybound, presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just a little bit, you're going to get to hear Lori Frankel read from her novel, One, Two, Three. She'll be accompanied with an original Storybound remix. Please note this is part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, go listen to that. Meet us back here. See you soon. Russell E. Russo, Esquire, knocked on lots of doors before Nora's. Some people did not answer on principle. They did not open their doors to strangers wearing neckties. Some quietly or not so quietly closed the door in his face when he introduced himself. Some let him in and heard him out and deposited his card in the wastebasket before he'd finished backing out of their driveways. By the time Russell showed up, people in Bourne had a deep distrust of outsiders. But to be honest, people in Bourne were probably never going to be much for lawyers anyway. Russell E. Russo, Esquire. He kept saying he was here to help them, but why would he? If anyone were going to care, they'd have cared already. If strangers came when people were in need, they'd have come long ago. Since the answers were never honest, no one in Bourne was fool enough to ask the questions anymore. Except for Nora. Except for Nora. When Nora opened her door, her hair a cloud of tangles encrusted variously with vomit, snot, and milk, wearing a robe liberally splattered with some previous night's dinner, holding two screaming two-month-olds while a third howled from a laundry basket lined with towels and deposited in the middle of the kitchen floor. Mr. Russo introduced himself and inquired without irony whether she had any complaints regarding the recently shuttered Belsom Chemical Plant. She handed him one of the babies, me, not an answer to his question, but because she imagined that with one hand free, she could put on coffee. And while that wouldn't solve the problem, it would at least help matters. And matters needed helping. Russell, Russell E. Russo, Russell E. Russo, Esquire, Esquire. He came in. He sat down. He took all three babies into his lap. It is true we were very small, and he was, is, a large man with big arms and a lot of real estate on his lap when he sits. But we still have trouble picturing all four of us piled together. Though Monday has many times pressed Nora for specifics as to how he managed it, our mother is vague on the details. She was sleep deprived and also breathtaking. Here, her knight in shining armor had shown up at her door. Had she been limitlessly granted her most wondrous, most extravagant, most dearly held dream, there was nothing she would have wished to open her door to more than the offer to join a class action lawsuit against Belsom Chemical. Especially one with an extra set of hands who wasn't put off by a house full of screaming babies. 
Russell Russo was gentle and kind and surprisingly good with children. He talked so quickly Nora's ears ached trying to keep up. He informed her, deadly serious, deadly serious. that Belsom Chemical had wronged the citizens of Bourne. He broke this to her as if she didn't know already, as if she wouldn't believe it unless he explained it to her like a child or someone not from Bourne, someone unborn. But she didn't feel talked down to. She felt broken open with gratitude that it was just that simple, simple. just that clear. clear. And to someone from out there in the rest of the world, it wasn't just in Nora's head. Russell Russo spoke of wrongful death, criminal negligence, perjury, failure of oversight, buried memos, biased reports, and attempted cover-ups. He had spoken already to many of her neighbors. He had a pledge from the senior partners at his firm that he could take the case on contingency. He had associates and paralegals and interns back at his office who were already waiting through boxes and boxes of documents. He was certain that somewhere in them was the smoking gun, the damning evidence, the indisputable proof of what Belsom knew and when they knew it that would force them to hand out significant, much-deserved, desperately needed, only fair cash settlements, which, Russell admitted, would not make up for her losses, for nothing could, but which would make it easier to get on with her life, both financially and the part where she didn't walk around all day long feeling like she'd been royally fucked and no one gave a shit. Russell E. Russo, Esquire. He was smart and passionate and handsome, of course. Was there any chance she was not going to fall in love with him? It was the knight in shining armor stuff. It was that he was intelligent and kind and going to save her. It was that he eased her way and carried her load. It was that he had never seen her other than she was now. It was that her husband was well and truly gone. And though the same could not be said about Russell's wife, That wasn't Nora's fault because she didn't know he had one. At least not at first. The music you're hearing in this episode is sampled from Toby Tranter, Fruk, and Joby. And now for a quick commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Laurie Frankel. And now we return from our break. Russell, 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 Esquire. Belson has wronged you, he told her. But of course she already knew that. So they have to pay. Why? Why what? Why do they have to pay? You're saying otherwise it's not fair? It's not fair. It's not, but things usually aren't. You're not a five-year-old, Mr. Russo. Russell, he corrected her. You're not a five-year-old, Russell. Russell. It's not fair isn't a reason for adults. It's the best reason there is. Russell truly believed this. She found his conviction touching, but she didn't buy it. This is really about money, she guessed, not fairness. He kept his eyes on hers, would not allow them to wander over her meager home when he said, you're gonna need it. I don't want their money. Sure you do. Besides, it's not theirs. Money belongs to whoever has it. Don't you think that should be you? They can stick it up their ass. You need it, Nora. These girls are gonna need 
Well, many things. Three kids on a single mother's salary would be hard no matter where you lived, but what's wrong with here? Not a lot of job prospects. And whose fault is that? Said Nora. Belsons, that's what I keep telling you. So you're doing this to make up for my dead husband, my wronged children, and my poison town? No. No? No. Nothing can make up for that. No one's talking making up for. I'm talking money. As compensation? To meet your significant egregious needs. Significant egregious needs for which they are at fault. And you get a cut? If we win, yes, I would get a cut. For your pain and suffering? He shrugged. This is my job, Nora. You get paid for yours, don't you? This is why people are slamming the door in your face, Russell. Why? She laughed at his earnest confusion. Real laughter. It sounds an awful lot like the deal we started with. The deal you... The one we're still getting fucked by. How? I'm on your side. I'm making you money. So was Belsom. No, they weren't. Belsom was never on anyone's side but Belsom's. They pitched us exactly what you're selling. We'd all be rich. Sure, they'd make money too, of course. But that just made it win-win. Without them, we'd get nothing. With them, there'd be jobs, growth, opportunity. There'd be infrastructure improvement, increased services, a bolstered local economy. That's completely different. How? They're a giant corporation. Of course they don't have your interests at heart. He looked at her, considered. Okay, it is about money, but not the way you think. If we fought, if we won, you'd make some, and your neighbors would make some, and my firm would make some. Enough to continue to do this kind of work. It wouldn't make up for what's happened to you, but it would make things easier. Maybe he took her hand while he said it. Maybe their eyes met and sparked. But none of that's the reason to do it. The reason to do it is to prevent it from happening ever again. And the only way to do that is to punish them severely enough for what they did. And the only way to do that is to make them pay, literally. She smiled then. You should have led with that. Prevention? Revenge. The music you're hearing in this episode is sampled from Gustav and Yi Nantiro. And now for our final commercial break. You are listening to Storybound with Lori Frankel. And now for our final chapter. Night after night, Nora would put the babies to bed, then make a quick batch of cookies, or open a bottle of wine, or heat up something easy for dinner, and look through boxes, while Russell poured over records and transcripts. One night a song came up on shuffle, and he didn't even look up from his paperwork when he said, this was the theme song at my senior prom. Mine too, Nora said. And he looked up at her then, and removed his glasses, and came around the table, and took her hand and led her out onto the dance floor, which was just the other side of the kitchen table. 
and took her in his arms and pressed her to him. And very, very slowly, they danced. And when the song was over, he drew back to look at her, and she whispered, I did not dance like that at my prom. And he whispered, me neither. They fell asleep working sometimes, but Russell did not otherwise spend the night. He had a hotel room when he was in town, but usually he wasn't. He had a wife at home of whom Nora had been surprised, but relieved to learn. Surprised because he knew everything about her life, and it turned out she knew so little about his. Relieved because unrequited love of one's lawyer seemed more likely to result in good legal counsel than the requited kind, and that was a trade she was willing to make. His office was in New York, a city he described as loud and bustly and smelly compared to wide, green, open, quiet, poisoned born, and he told Nora, I wish I could stay here. And Nora told him, stay then. But after a few days of work, he always left. Still, surely it didn't stop at dancing. I don't know the details because I was a child and because I was her child, but I know what happened for a while. And then his wife got pregnant. Russell is a good guy, the adultery notwithstanding. But it wasn't the prospect of becoming a father that stopped it. It was actually becoming a father. One morning, he knocked on the door, soaking and lost. He wasn't scheduled to be in town. He'd been coming less and less. So when Nora opened the door and found him on her front step, she was surprised, then delighted, then worried in very short order. It was pouring, and he was drenched, but he didn't even look up when the door opened. Russell? Nora. You're here. Yes. I'm so glad. Come in. Russell, you're soaking. Come inside. I can't. Why not? Then finally he looked up from his sodden shoes. The baby was born, he said. Oh, Russell, she gasped. I'm so glad. And she looked it. That's what I remember from that moment. She was truly glad, truly happy for him, like he was her best friend and not her lover, which I suppose he was. No, he said. No, she said. And then Russell whispered, he has Down syndrome. Her face fell and he dropped to his knees right there on the front porch, and she bent over him, an attempt to shield him, which did not work. Did you know, Nora asked, as if that were the point? He shook his head. Sarah said no to all the tests. The midwives told her they were unnecessary. Is he okay? Who? The baby. No, Nora. His eyes focused on her clutching him in the rain. He has Down syndrome. Yes, I know, said Nora, but is he okay? 
I don't know. I don't even know what that means. As long as he's healthy, Nora said. As long as Sarah's okay, you'll be okay. You'll all be okay. There are so many things worse than Down syndrome. Maybe this was fumblingly put, heat of the moment and all that, shock and sadness, and no time to pick your words over like lentils looking for stones. And to her credit, her eyes did not so much as flicker in my direction, but I know she thought it all the same. Me, I am what's worse than Down syndrome, among other things. We were wrong, Russell said. Who? You and I. About what, said Nora. It wasn't the water. It wasn't the chemicals. It wasn't the plant. Who knows what it was? What are you saying? So many things can ruin a baby. So many things get broken on the way. No one can ever say why. Nora stood upright, backed away a step. You'd like to think she was appalled by his words, the horrible things he was saying, or maybe appalled by the state he must have been in to utter them. And maybe she was. But mostly I think she was stumbling under the dawning realization of what he was going to say next. Why are you here, Russell? To tell you it's over. He did not specify what it was that was over. Everything, maybe. But it wasn't that simple. For one thing, no one understood as well as Nora what Russell was going through. He felt at first that he could hardly stand under the weight of loving his newborn son, but that his heart was also broken because no one else ever would. What we know now, that Sarah had shock and postpartum depression, not lack of love, that Matthew's teachers and neighbors and doorman and the guy who runs the bodega downstairs and the two women who own their favorite coffee shop and all the kids at the 91st Street playground would adore everything about him, especially his smile, wide as the arc of the swings. Russell could not see at the time, but I could, and Nora could. She was so thoroughly, entirely, in all the world, the right person to talk him off this particular ledge It seemed like a miracle to Russell that he'd ever met her. But of course, that was why he'd left the hospital and driven through the night to show up at our door. That was the one thing, the main thing. But the other was this. Letting go of Russell was heartbreaking and devastating and left a hole like a canyon, but it was possible. Letting go of the case against Belsom was not. Actually, that's not quite true. It was possible for Russell, who let it go like a weight sinking to the bottom of the ocean with him holding on. He released it and then floated right up to the top where air and light and hope are. He watched it spiral down below, doomed, but doomed without him, his sadness eclipsed utterly by his relief. Or maybe it was just that he didn't have enough hands anymore. But Nora hung on like life while the case sank toward death, down, down under the waters. She fought the waves and swells by herself, though she lacked expertise and experience in law. She lacked her partner in commitment and enthusiasm. She lacked someone with whom to share the highs of discovery and the lows of what she knew goddamn well but could never prove. But that didn't mean she stopped. She never stopped. There was no money for a new lawyer one who hadn't sought them out, wouldn't work on contingency. 
would have to start from scratch. So Russell still helps, still takes her calls, files necessary paperwork, keeps her apprised of developments, does the minimum to keep the suit pending, but it's on the back burner of the neighbor's stove. Nora does the bulk of the work now, researches, reads, compiles notes, remains vigilant. She cheerleads too, stokes her neighbor's anger, encourages when they despair, reminds when they forget. She's kept the lawsuit alive, kept up with everyone signed on to it, kept after the elusive proof that will finally be enough. She has done it all, and she has done it mostly alone. In the end, this is another of the many things my mother and I share. Not just unrequited, but unrequitable love. Stories we know from the start will not, cannot, have happy endings. An unusual thing to turn out to be hereditary. Happy is not an option for us. Nora understands this, but she imagines fair is still on the table. Thank you to Lori Frankel for reading. You can pre-order her novel 123 from your beloved local bookseller, and it'll arrive on June 8th. The music in this episode was sampled from Toby Tranter, Fruk, Job, Gustav, and Yin Antiro. Thank you to Stephen Foxbury at Yellow Couch Studio, Connor Mincer at Henry Holt, and thank you to Epidemic Sound. And a big thank you to Jordan Aaron for production help, as well as our beloved Tim Carplus for mixing this episode. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of Lit Hub. We're still on a break between seasons, but we are hard at work on season four. Make sure you're subscribed to the show so you're notified when new episodes are published. And let us know what you think of the show. Find us on Twitter or on Instagram at StoryBoundPod. Thank you for listening. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.